You are listening to Pastor Bill Hennard, guest speaker of Harvest Community Church in Catanning, Pennsylvania. We pray that you will be challenged today as you listen to a sermon entitled, How to Develop a Passion for Evangelism, recorded on April the 24th, 2016. For more information, check us out on the web at harvestpa.org. Let's join Pastor Bill as he preaches. I do want you to open your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 4. I know the emphasis right now is, is on a term meaning that, that we use called evangelism. And a, a, evangelism is a, is a term that just talks about the need for us to share our faith in Christ with other people. Uh, I was traveling, uh, I, actually I forget where I was headed, but I was, I was flying and ended up having to have a layover in Atlanta. And when I was living in Lexington, Kentucky, I was a pastor there for 16 years. Uh, normally, I'd try to get a flight that went through Cincinnati because Cincinnati was uh, an easy airport to navigate. Uh, I do not believe in the doctrine of purgatory. Uh, but if I did believe in it, I think it's the Atlanta airport, <laughs> if you've ever flown, because it's so big and you just get lost. And I was there and there were delays and it was just, it was just crazy. Well, normally, when I travel, I bring something to read and I... Uh, inadvertently packed my book in my checked bag instead of having it on, in my carry-on. And so I'm going to be there for several hours. I didn't have anything to read. So I went by one of the newsstands, and I picked up a copy of the U.S. News and World Report, and I picked up a copy of uh, the Atlanta newspaper. And I read through the newspaper, and then I read through the uh, U.S. Uh, magazine, And then I'm back reading the newspaper again, and you know you've been in an airport too long when you start reading the obituaries, you know what I mean? So I'm there reading the obituaries, and as I'm looking through that, something caught my eye. And I started counting the number of of deaths that they had had and and looking at that, and here's what what I discovered. This is in Atlanta, Georgia. That in that newspaper on that day, there were 69 Uh, obituaries. Of those 69 obituaries, reading them, six individuals had a church membership. One said they attended church. One said they were of the Baptist faith. I'm not sure exactly what that meant. And only half of them actually listed that there was a pastor or a minister of some kind doing the funeral. Now, culturally, that may be how they do, and they may not list all that information and, and all, but it just struck me that here I am in, in a city that houses some of the greatest churches of all kinds, denominational, non-denominational, all kinds of evangelical churches. Some of the greatest pastors and some of the greatest leaders in the church are found in Atlanta, Georgia, and yet Atlanta, Georgia was a very lost city. Sometimes um, among us as believers, we forget about the lostness of our world. I I don't want to inundate you with uh, information or, or statistics, but I want you to realize this or think about this. Right now, on our earth, there are about 7.2 billion people that live on the, on the planet earth. I can't imagine what that looks like, what 7.2 billion people look like. 
But if you read different prognosticators and researchers, Global Focus is one of those, and they're one of the more conservative groups, and they estimate that the world's population at 7.2 million, or 7.2 billion, that only about 11% of the population is Christian. If that's true, then what that means is that right now, this very moment, there are six and a half billion people living on the face of the earth who do not know Jesus Christ. Every day, every 24 hours in the world, there are 345,000 babies that are born. And if nothing changes, if we don't change our behaviors and our directions and our attitudes and and how we do things, 307,000 of those babies that are born today are going to grow up and die and go into an eternity without Jesus Christ. Every day, there are 196,000 people that die. Today, there will be 196,000 people across the world who will die. 174,000 of the people who die today will die and go into an eternity without Jesus Christ. If we as evangelicals, those who believe the Scriptures, could lead a million people to Christ a year, which I don't think if you gather all of the evangelical world together and say how many people are being led to Christ, I doubt it's, it's a million people. It may be, it may be, but I, I doubt it. But even if we were able to do that, and you would freeze the number of people who are being born and the number of people who die it would still take us 320 years to reach America. It would take us over 7,000 years to reach the world. Which basically means it's almost insurmountable. I mean, we're living in this culture, you think about it, we've gone from modernism to postmodernism to now what, what many researchers call it, they say that we're living in this post-Christian society, this post, post-Christian uh, culture that is becoming increasingly more antagonistic about Christianity. The reason I picked up uh, the copy of that magazine of U.S. Uh, World and, uh, News and World Report was because on the front of it, 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 had, it had the title of, of the major article, it said... Hell, another vision of the nether world. And on the front, it had a picture of Satan. He's standing there with a big grin on his face, holding up a glass of lemonade. Over his right shoulder, there were were a group of people playing Hell Beach Volleyball. And on the other side, there were people who were sunning themselves in the flames of hell. And basically, the picture and the attitude and the conclusion of the article is that people still believe that hell is a real place. They just think it's not as bad as it used to be. And that's sort of the perspective of our world today. And we wonder, well, how, how are we going to reach the world for Christ? It, it seems that it's such a... You, you talk about 7 billion people. You talk about in America, there are 320 million people. How are we going to reach those individuals? Well, here's, here's the thought. If just one person today in this congregation, one person, you decide, all right, I'm going to live my life 
And the purpose of my life is going to be to share my faith with my friends and my family. And I'm going to set a goal that this year I'm going to lead one person to faith in Christ. Just one. And then I'm going to disciple that person this year, and I'm going to teach them how to grow in Christ, how to follow the Christian, the Christian life, and how to share their faith. And then at the end of that year, the two of us will then go out and lead each someone else to Christ, and we're going to disciple that person during the year and teach them how to share their faith. And at the end of that year, we're going to... The four of us are going to go out and lead somebody else to Christ and disciple that person and teach them how to share their faith with other people. Do you realize that if that pattern would continue, we literally would reach America in 28 to 29 years. We would reach the world in 33. The question would be, will you be that one? In Paul's letter that he writes in 2 Timothy, we often see this passage and we see this this letter written to this young pastor, and we think, well, that's that's a letter to pastors. But you realize that every time that there would be an encouragement given to a pastor, the reason it was done so that he might pass it on to his church. Let me give you a little background. Paul traveled to Ephesus during his second missionary journey. He preached there and he left a couple that he had met in Corinth by the name of Aquila and Priscilla there in Ephesus to start the church. Paul moved on and and, and he left that couple there. They stayed there about about a year or so. Paul would come back through Ephesus on his third missionary journey. Uh, Aquila and Priscilla went back to Corinth. Aquila and Priscilla, interesting, they were Jews who had lived in Rome And when Claudius began the uh, uh, persecution of the Jews in Rome, they they had to leave Rome. They, They were converted to Christ, ended up in Corinth. Now they go back to Corinth. Paul comes back to Ephesus, and he spends about three years there pastoring that church. He would leave again, and this time after his third journey, he would be arrested in Jerusalem would be taken to Caesarea, which is on the Sea of the Mediterranean Sea, and then he would be taken on to Rome. There in Rome, he would write letters. He would write uh, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and the letter to Philemon. He would be released from prison, and he would travel one more time through that region of Asia Minor and, and Macedonia. He would leave Titus in Crete, He would leave Timothy there in Ephesus. Now Timothy becomes the pastor of the the Ephesian church. Paul would go to Macedonia. Most probably he would be in Thessalonica. He would write 1 Timothy uh, from Thessalonica to Timothy. Uh, If you want to read a, a book of the Bible that talks about how to have a healthy church, read 1 Timothy. Because that's what the whole point is. It's a letter to Pastor Timothy, but it's how to have a healthy church, how to deal with the problems that you face in church. He's then arrested because uh, Nero has become the emperor. He's burned Rome. He blames the Christians. Paul is arrested. He's put in the inner dungeon of the prison in Rome. And that's when he writes 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy is the last letter he'll ever write. 
the last thing he'll ever say. Last things matter, don't they? You know, when you, when, when you know you're going to die and it's a great leader, we want to get, gather close and say, what, what is it that you would have to say? What's the last thing that you would leave for us? That's what Paul gives us. And here's what he says. Now look at, look at this chapter. This is 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse, starting with verse 1. He says, Before God in Christ Jesus, who is going to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing in His kingdom, I solemnly charge you, preach the word, Persist in it, whether convenient or not. Rebuke, correct, and encourage with great patience and teaching. For the time will come when they will not tolerate sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, will accumulate teachers for themselves because they have an itch to hear something new. If you've ever thought about if the Bible is true, I believe we're seeing that prophecy fulfilled before our very eyes in our culture today. They'll turn away from hearing the truth. They'll turn aside to myths. But as for you, keep a clear head about everything. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. How are we going to reach the world with the gospel? How are you going to reach western Pennsylvania with the gospel? How are you going to reach this city with the gospel? How are you going to reach your friends and your family with the gospel? The answer is that while all of us are not called, you say, well, you know, I, I'm not called to be an evangelist. That's, that's not my gifting. Well, most of us don't have the gift of the evangelist. That's not my gifting. But while I am not gifted specifically spiritually to be an evangelist, do you realize that every single one of us are called to do evangelism? We all have the responsibility to share our faith. Now, the question is, how do I do that? Well, that's, that's where I think we find the answer here in Paul. Because as he writes to this pastor by the name of Timothy, obviously Timothy's gift is not that of an evangelist. His gifting was that of a pastor. Your gifting may be totally different from, from that. But what he's talking about there is, well, Timothy, you don't have the gift of an evangelist. You can certainly develop the passion for evangelism. How do we develop a passion for people who don't know Christ? To be passionate enough that we would share our faith with them. Well, that's what I want to share with you this morning. How can we find that passion to share our faith with others. It starts with this. Let me, let me just give you some, some simple thoughts with that. Number one, it is a passion that is ignited through certain biblical convictions. If you want to develop a passion for evangelism, you say, I, you know, I'll be that one. And I want to share my faith this year. I, I want to lead at least one person to Christ this year. I want to be able to share my faith. But I, how do I do that? Well, you see, it is a passion that is ignited through certain biblical convictions. The reason why you attend this church is because you have a Bible-believing and preaching pastor. Is that right? Isn't that right? All right. What we want to do is we want to take the, those, that biblical teaching and that biblical preaching and we want to begin applying it to our life to understand 
how we would do evangelism. How can we do evangelism? Well, there's, there's two things that it encourages us about. Here's what the text teaches us. Number one is that you need to be convinced about the eternal destiny of people outside of Christ. If you're going to have a biblical conviction, one of those biblical convictions is to be concerned, be convinced about the eternal destiny of people outside of Christ. Now look at what Paul says. He says, before God in Christ Jesus, who is going to judge the living and the dead. The word judge is actually kind of a neutral word. It can be to to make a good judgment. It could be to make a, a bad judgment. It depends on the context of how it's used within the Bible. Here it's dealing with the issue that in coming to judge the living and the dead, it is understanding that every person who does not know Jesus, when they die, they stand before Christ and they give an accounting of themselves. If you read Revelation chapter 20, the Bible talks about this great white throne judgment. And it, it, the, the idea of that is that there is a judgment that people will face. It is not a judgment to determine, well, can you talk your way into heaven? The judgment is that at that point the sentence is carried out. People who do not know Christ right now are already condemned. They are already under judgment. Jesus talked about that. He said he didn't come into the world to condemn the world because the world was already condemned. Because of sin, we are separated from God. And it is at that judgment then that the condemnation, that the sentence is carried out. Do you realize how much Jesus loved people who didn't know Christ, didn't know Him? And how much He talked about what happens to people who reject Him as Savior and what the end result is going to be. In the New Testament... One of the primary words, in fact, the word, if you, if you have a Bible that uses or translates the word into the word hell, it is normally the word, it is the Greek word Gehenna. The word Gehenna is found 12 times in the New Testament. It's found 11 times in the Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. In the Gospels, the 11 times that it's used, every time it is used, it is used by Jesus. Let me give you a little background to that word. The word Gehenna comes from the Old Testament, the Hebrew, where during the days when Ahaz was the king, he became very enamored with some of the gods of Syria and the gods of the Canaanites. And he built these altars in honor to worship these foreign gods. One of the gods that he built an altar to was the god named Molech. He was the Canaanite fire god. And literally, the the artist's renditions of it in in trying to understand what it was is that it's this, this huge god that's sitting down and his arms are held out like this. And under him, you would burn fire. And what 2 Kings 16 and other passages deal with is the fact that the children of Israel would come and literally offer live babies as a a sacrifice to this Canaanite god. 2 Kings 16 even suggests that Ahaz participated in this atrocity. The Hebrew word for Gehenna is the word Gehenam, literally 
the valley of lamentations. That's the translation of that word. Now you can imagine that as they are bringing these babies, I don't know if the mothers willingly offered them as a sacrifice, but you can imagine that as they lay this baby on this burning altar, that there would be screaming and wailing of that child as it burns to death, that perhaps as they rip the baby out of the arms of the mother, the mother is wailing as that baby is going to be burned as, a, as an offering, a sacrifice to the God. Well, when the reforms came, They tore down that altar. And they turned that valley of lamentations into a garbage dump. During the days of Jesus, it was a garbage dump. And when you would stand in the temple complex near the southeast corner, you could look out upon that garbage dump where fires burned 24 hours a day and they would bring all of their refuse and the bodies of dead animals and the bodies of unclaimed criminals that that had been crucified and they would burn them there. It is why the Bible talks about that this place of, uh, of eternal torment is a place where the fire always burns and the worm never dies. Jesus used that as an illustration to say that's what life is like without Him. That when you choose not to follow Him, there is an eternal destiny. The second most prominent word is is the word Hades. The word Hades is found 11 times in the New Testament, but it is found four times in the Gospels. All four times it is used by Jesus Christ. One of the most prominent places that you find it is in Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16, you have the story of Lazarus and the rich man. Some call it the parable of Lazarus and the rich man. I do not believe it's a parable. Though Jesus taught this lesson in what is called parabolic uh, language. He used the language of a parable. I believe it it was real. I think that Lazarus was a real person. I think this rich man was a real person. Jesus did not name him. And it says that when Lazarus died, he went to the side of Abraham, which is a description of paradise and what heaven would be. He says that that the rich man went to Hades. And in torment there, he lifted up his eyes, reminding us and describing us that the eternity without Christ is a life of torment. It it is is an indescribable event. I, I don't think there are English, Greek, Hebrew, whatever language you're talking, I don't think there are words that can adequately describe what it is like for someone to die without Christ in their life. Another word that's very prominent in the New Testament is the word perish. The word perish doesn't mean to cease to exist. It is talking about absolutely loss or absolute loss. One of our favorite verses of Scripture is John 3.16, isn't it? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Whoever believes in Him, we stop there. But what the Scripture says is, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. 
You see, when a person dies without Christ, they die and they go into an eternity of, of ultimate loss. I, I like what Herschel Hobbes describes it. He says it means to be utterly lost in hell. You see, we, we've got to come to that point to, to believe and to understand that when a person dies without Christ, life doesn't cease to exist. You see, every person in here is eternal. We're all going to live forever. It just depends on where you're going to spend eternity. And that's what, what Jesus is communicating to us. That's what Paul is communicating to us. It is to, ha- to be convinced that there is an eternal destiny that people will, will experience, especially those who are outside of Christ. And we've got to be convinced of that. Here's the problem. I think that many of us in the evangelical world have become what I call a closet universalist. You know, we believe in hell, and we believe that the bad people go there. You know, we think Hitler will say, yeah, Hitler's in hell, and Saddam Hussein is in hell, and the bad people are in hell. But when we think about our own family, or we think about our friends, we want to make some kind of exception. We think of our dear sweet granny, who used to let us sleep on her feather bed and would make us eat grape nuts in the morning. We didn't like grape nuts, but because granny would give them to us, we'd eat them. And she'd let us get away with murder, and with our dad would come in to try to discipline as granny would step in and say, don't you touch that boy. And you loved your granny. But see, granny never trusted in Christ as her Savior. She was a good woman, but she never trusted in Christ as Savior. And when she dies, you're thinking, well, certainly there's got to be an exception. You see, the reason why we struggle in talking about evangelism, not the need that people need Christ. We all agree with that. We're thankful for that. But when it comes down to saying and dealing with our own friends and our own family and our own selves, it puts us in an incredibly uncomfortable moment because we realize that our own family, that if they die without Christ, they go into an eternity to a place called hell. And that makes me very uncomfortable, doesn't you? It makes me very uncomfortable to think about that. But what I've got to realize is that's why God is giving me the purpose and the reason to do evangelism. To share my faith with my family and my friends to those who don't know Christ. To be convinced that there is an eternal destiny. Well, there's a, a second part of that biblical conviction. The first biblical conviction deals with having that, that being convinced about the eternal destiny of the, those who are outside of Christ. But it is also a biblical conviction that means to be con- concerned about our own personal accountability. Verse 5. Paul tells us, keep a clear head about everything, endure hardship, Do the work of an evangelist and fulfill your ministry. That word to fulfill means to bring it to full measure. There is a point that we need to understand, an issue that we need to understand, that all of us as believers are going to stand before Christ 
And we too are going to give an accounting of ourselves. In fact, three times in the New Testament, the Bible speaks of what is called the judgment seat of Christ. That is the place for believers. Not determining whether or not we're saved. That's already taken care of. But it is what have we handled? How have we handled? What have we done with the mystery of the gospel? 1 Corinthians 4, Paul says that we are all stewards of the mysteries of the gospel, the mysteries of the faith. And that as, as, as stewards of the mysteries of the gospel, we are all going to be held accountable, that we must be found faithful. Well, we, we've got to have, have this, this, this understanding of our own accountability. Here's what's happened in the church today. In the church today, we have become so slick in our methodologies and so precise in our marketing and and, and so good in, in, in how we do church that you literally can grow a church and never have to mention the name Jesus. And if you look at the, the church world today, you'll find there are any number of churches that are like that. You can grow a church and never have to mention the name of Jesus. Well, we've got to be convinced about our own accountability. That one day, every one of us are going to stand before Christ and we're going to give an accounting of ourselves. And the difficulty is that when we talk about evangelism, it really does make us uncomfortable. In fact, Pastor, used to be when you'd preach the sermon, the number one sermon of why people would get mad at you as a preacher would when you'd preach about money. We still get mad about that one, but that's number two. Number one is when we talk about evangelism. And not evangelism, you know, sin saved and sanctified, that, that people need Jesus and we need to love people who need Jesus and, and those kinds of things. But it's when we talk about that you as a Christian have a personal responsibility to be an evangelist, to tell others about Christ. That makes us uncomfortable and we don't like that. At my last church, uh, uh, we were in multiple services like yours, and it was in between services, and, and uh, there, we actually we were doing some campuses, and I would preach at the other campus and, and have somebody drive me back, so uh, the, other, the final service would always have started by the time I would get back, and, and so I'm trying to make my way in the service, and before I'm there, there, there was one way in, and there was a lady standing there <laughs> waiting on me. And so, I, you know, I had nowhere to go, so I stopped, and she says, Pastor, I need to talk with you. Now, let me give you a little hint. If you need to talk with your pastor, call him during the week and set up an appointment. Don't catch him right before the service. I'll go ahead, yeah, amen. I'll go ahead and give you a little, a little hint on that. Don't, 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 don't do that. Unless you're going to hand him a hundred bucks, and that's okay. But, but uh, don't, don't do that. Well, she's standing there, and she says, Pastor... My ladies' class has been meeting, and we are concerned and need to talk with you. And I said, well, yes, ma'am, what, what, what's the problem? She said, we are concerned about all of these people that are being baptized in our church. We don't think they're being properly discipled, and we don't think that we need to talk about evangelism anymore. Well, I'm not going to tell you how I responded because I was a smart aleck back then. I was young and a smart aleck. 
uh, I'm old and, and I've mellowed, my wife, I've mellowed some uh, in my old age. But the sad thing was, here's a lady that had, had missed the point. See, she, she didn't realize her own accountability wasn't, wasn't about, you know, how many Bible verses had you memorized. You know, when you stand before Christ and give an accounting, it's not going to be, well, how many verses did you memorize? How, did you have perfect attendance or not? What, you know, how, how, how many times could you quote the Bible from the King James? Our accountability has how have we handled the mysteries of the gospel? How have we handled what Christ has given to us? And see, when you understand that accountability, it helps give you a passion. You, you know, when you realize that people are lost without Christ and you realize, I have a responsibility to share my faith with them, it ignites a passion for evangelism. Let me share with you a second thing. How, how do we gain a, a passion for evangelism? It's, it's, it's ignited through these biblical convictions. But secondly, it is a passion that is intensified through a love for those who don't know Christ. Go back to the text. Paul says that, that, that the word needs to be preached. To persist in it, whether convenient or not, to rebuke, correct, encourage. Look at these words. Encourage with great patience and teaching. That word uh, patience is literally the word long-suffering. Literally, it's to be long-tempered. One of the spiritual gifts that God gives us is patience. It's really not even a thing you even have to ask for. It's one of the fruits of the Spirit. And God gives that to us. And it's how you know. One of the ways that you know where your walk with Christ is is how patient are you with others. The fuse that you have. If you've got a short fuse, it probably means that you're struggling somewhere spiritually. The longer, the closer you are with Christ, the longer your fuse will get. And especially with those who don't know Christ. Here's the thing we've got to remember. The people who are the most antagonistic toward the gospel are not our enemies. And sometimes the way that we talk about people who are outside of Christ, and I realize we've got to deal with moral and ethical issues, and we deal as salt and light, and we deal with those things, but we must also realize that those who do not know Jesus are not the enemy of the church. I'm not full of profound things or profundity. Here's the most profound thing I'll teach you today. It's a simple statement. Just remember this, the reason why lost people act the way they act is because they're lost. See, just remember that. Instead of, instead of isolating yourself and becoming frustrated with people and, and, and there always be that critical mindset when you think of those who don't have a relationship with Christ, just remember this. You've got to love people who are outside of Christ. You want a passion for doing evangelism? Learn to love people where they are. It is not that we accept their lifestyle. It is not that we accept their morality. It is the fact that we love them because we realize the reason they're acting the way they act is because they don't know Christ yet. Here's the problem that most of us have in the Christian life. 
Once we become Christians, we need to get in a small group. If you're not in a small group, you need to talk to one of the pastors. Get in, get in a small group. You've got to get into a small group. You've got to be discipled. You've got to grow in your faith. You need to get around other believers. But then what happens is we start isolating ourselves. At my last church, I found that to be so very true. You'd go into my office and and all of the books that I had on my shelves were Christian books, save just a very few books that I had on, on uh, nonfiction, uh, historical nonfiction. I love to read stories and books about World War II, and, and so I had a few of those books. But most of you know, all my books were Christian. The, you know, the coffee mug that I had uh, were, were, was a Christian coffee mug. About everything I had in, in the office was Christian. Even most of the pastors in our church were Christians. <laughs> I wondered about a few of them, but, you know, I, I, you know, you're surrounded by Christians. And then in the culture in which we live, we can isolate ourselves. Where, where I live right now, I, I live in, in uh, Culloden, West Virginia. I know where all, that all of y'all know where Culloden is. There's a little spot in the road. But I can go to the Kroger's, and I can do all of my shopping and never have to meet a single person because I can check out through the self-checkout lane. I buy all my, my stuff at, at Home Depot. And I can go through self-checkout at Home Depot. I can pay all of my bills online. I can do all of my banking online. I literally can do everything that I do and never have to meet another individual. And what I have learned about developing a passion for evangelism is that I've got to be willing to develop intentional relationships with people who don't know Christ. You realize how much Jesus loved people? Read the story of the woman of the well in John chapter 4. Here is a woman who had been abused by men her entire life, and she meets Jesus who demonstrates for her a love that she had never experienced. Here's, here's Zacchaeus. Jesus is literally headed to Jerusalem to die. If you understand the context of, of what was happening in, 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 in Luke 19, Jesus is literally headed to Jerusalem to die. But he stops in Jericho, and there he meets Zacchaeus, that tax collector who, who was hiding up in the tree to get a glimpse of Jesus. And he says, today salvation is going to come to your house. Today I'm going to fellowship with you. Jesus, though he was coming to die for the world, still understood the relationship and the need to engage people on an individual basis and to love them. If there would be any decision that you need to make today, it is to make that decision that I'm going to intentionally engage people, build witnessing relationships with people who don't know Jesus. It's amazing the conversations that you can have. If you just listen to what people have to say and care enough to listen to them, to tell them about Christ. This word to exhort in verse 2, where he says to, 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 to rebuke, to correct, and exhort to encourage with great patience. That, to exhort, to encourage, that's a word that, that is found... 108 times in the New Testament. 61 of the times that it's found in the New Testament, it literally means to plead or to beg. 
Five times it is used in direct connection with evangelism. One of the most prominent places is found in in Acts chapter 2, where Simon Peter is preaching to thousands of people. There on the, in the, out, uh, the outside of the temple, I, I believe it was outside of the southern gate because there were, there's a portico there. It's very natural, and there, there could be thousands of people that could gather there. And he's there preaching the gospel, and it says that after he had finished sharing these things, it says that with many other words, he urged them, he pleaded with them, he gave testimony and begged them and pleaded with them, be saved from this perverse generation. And on that day, 3,000 people openly and freely confess their faith in Christ by being baptized. You see, it is that passion that we need to have. Build relationships with people. In a minute, we'll be done and you'll be leaving. A lot of you guys will go out to eat. You've got family you're going to go visit. You've got friends that you're going to see. You're going to engage people. But don't put on the blinders to say church is over and now it's done and I'm going to go out in the world and just do my thing. Listen, church ends, but what happens when we leave the doors of this, of this facility is we've got to go out and be the church. And let people know, build that relationship with them. Be intentional to let people know about the Savior who changed your life. You see, that's how you build a passion for evangelism. It starts with, with, this, with these convictions that we have biblically about what happens to people who die who don't know Christ. It, it grows and it intensifies as we develop a love for people who don't know Jesus. It's amazing how people will respond to you when you love them. One of the things I I found that that I can use as a witness is is playing golf. Amen. Amen. Yeah, that's yeah. Can I get an amen from the congregation? Let me tell you let me tell you what you show up at a golf course and if you go by yourself, they normally will pair you with other people. Now, I was in, I, I, you can tell I travel into Atlanta a lot. I was in hot Atlanta. It was August. It was humid. I mean, it was hot. And I, I was supposed to meet somebody to play golf. He, he was a, a golf pro. He'd, he'd set it up. And he couldn't show up at the last minute, but he said, go ahead and play. It's all paid for. What's well, that? A very nice, exclusive golf course that he got us on. So I show up, and they pair me up with three guys. And so we're playing. About, uh, about the second or third hole, the little cart girl comes by. It, it, when you play at really nice golf courses, they have these little girls in these carts, and they sell drinks and stuff. Well, I got my uh, $5 Gatorade. I mean, it was like that. I'm, I forgot to get me some before I went, and I'm nursing that baby, you know, because I'm at, you know, five bucks a pop. Well, they all bought a, a six-pack of adult beverages, well, I realized then that if we wanted to get into a gambling thing, I could, I could steal all their money, but that's not why God put me there, all right? So we're going through. I'll, be t- I'll tell you, the language was salty at times, and there were certain times it was fairly busy on the course, and so there were a lot of times that we're waiting uh, to be able to tee off, and there were times the language would get a little too salty, and they would tell stories that I didn't, didn't need to hear, and so I would kind of slip away and walk and act like I was looking for golf balls or, or something like that, because I didn't need to listen to that. 
But throughout the entire time, I realized, all right, you know, I've got to witness to these guys. Now, here's what I've learned about witnessing on the golf course. You don't talk to them about Jesus, the front nine. Because at the turn, they'll, they'll go and do something else. They won't play with you anymore. So I usually build relationship with them, build relationship with them, get to know them. And then after the turn, I move the conversation toward Christ. Now, we're at this point where I've asked them, you know, what do you guys do for a living? I mean, here's what's interesting, their life. One of the guys had a job. He hated his job. One of the guys had gotten married and was in his, his mid-20s, and his wife died. Another guy was getting married, and I said, well, who's doing the wedding? He had no idea. He didn't even know whether they were getting married. They were just going to get married. But they were all miserable. They were young guys, miserable. I mean, amazing that they're in their 20s, early 30s, and, and they were just living a life of misery. And so as we made the turn, finally one of the guys asked me what I did for a living. Now, I was trying to, you know, trying to be cute, and you realize you don't have to be cute when you're witnessing, but I was trying to be cute. And so I said, well, you know, I, I, let me describe it like this. I, I said, I'm the guy that nobody really wants to be around, but everybody wants him to be there when you need him. Well, they all thought I was an undertaker. <laughs> <laughs> I said, no, 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 no. I said, no, no, I'm, I, I, I pastor a church up in, in Kentucky, and, and, and uh, then one of the guys stopped me. And he turned to the other two guys, and he said, I told you that he was a preacher. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? How'd they know? I mean, that, see... You live your life in front of people, not in a condemning way, but you love them in spite of themselves. And here's, here's how the whole thing ended is, is I, I, I shared my faith with them through, through the remaining holes. And when we got there to, to the 18th green and we finished, we putted out, I just said, guys, would you mind if I prayed for you before I left? And in front of God and everybody, we gathered around and I put my arms around these guys and I prayed for them. Now, the story would be great if, if one of them had come to faith in Christ. They did not. But what I realized is that at that moment, I'm a seed sower. And I'm praying that someone else would meet them and water that seed, and someone else is going to reap the harvest. But it's the fact that here were guys that, yes, if I'd have just jumped on them about what they did and how they were acting and the language they used and the stories they told and the life they were living, they would have rejected. But Christ didn't call me to condemn people. He called me to love them into the heavens, into the gospel, into Christ, to love them in that way. Well, that's what Jesus did. You see, when, when you learn to love people, it intensifies, intensifies that, that passion for evangelism. And let me get you the, give you the last thing. How do I develop a passion for evangelism? It is a passion that is inflamed through a personal commitment to share Christ. Look at verse 5. Again, he says, do the work of an evangelist. That word, that simple word, to do in Paul's writings, is a word that means to accomplish a task, to fulfill something, to bring an action to its completion. So all of us, while we may not have the gift, the spiritual gift of the evangelist, we are all called to do the work of an evangelist, to accomplish that task. Now here's what I, I, I want you to think about. Why is it that God has left you here on this earth? I mean, it's got to be an awfully cruel joke 
For God to allow you to come to faith in Christ and then to leave you to have to deal with the junk of this world, isn't it? I mean, that's an awfully cruel joke unless God has a reason for you to be here. Now, you, you probably studied there, there are several priorities that the church has, and I want to kind of walk through these priorities. Our ultimate purpose as Christians is to always give glory to God. In everything that we do, in all that we do, Paul says, give glory to God. But there are five priorities. But, but of these priorities, really, why has God left us here? Well, someone would say, well, God's left us here to worship. But here's, here's the question. Do we really worship God perfectly? And, and we don't, do we? I mean, we, we are to worship, and worship should be a priority. And while we're here on earth, we worship. But we're not going to worship perfectly until we see Jesus face to face. Some would say it's discipleship. The reason why he's left us here is to become like Christ. But the problem is, Paul says, or John says, that we will be like him when we see him as he is. So we, none of us become perfect disciples. We're to be committed to discipleship, and that's a priority. But I don't believe that's why God's left us here. Some would say ministry, but let's be honest. There are some things that people go through, and it doesn't matter how hard you try and what words you speak. We really don't meet that person's need. Their needs will ultimately be met when when they're with Christ. Well, some would say, well, it's fellowship. The reason why God leaves us here is to fellowship. But let's be honest, we don't fellowship perfectly. I mean, you people sitting over here sit here because you really don't like the people that sit over there. You know, you got the saints and the sinner. All right. Now, we, you know, we try to fellowship, but we really don't fellowship. Let me tell you why, the one reason why God has left us here. God has left us here to do evangelism. That's why you're here. That, that is not a task that's given the, to the angels, even though the angels had the, had the privilege to announce the very birth of Jesus. It is not the responsibility of the angels to share the gospel. There is one purpose that God has given. And when you understand that, man, it'll revolutionize why you work where you work, why you're in the family you're in, why you're around the people you're around, why you do the things that you do, that all of these things play into the purpose that I am there to be a witness for Jesus Christ. Well, I want you to think about this. We've been here about an hour. And during this hour, 8,166 people have died. Just in this last hour. In our world, 8,166 people have died. 7,267 of them have died and they've gone to hell. The question we've got to answer is this. What are we going to do about it? What are we, what are you going to do about it? Thank you for listening to this sermon from Harvest Community Church. We invite you to join us at any one of our four campuses located in Catanning, Petrolia Valley, Indiana, and Freeport. For more information, check us out on the web at harvestpa.org.